Jesus is the humble king. We've seen that as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, and as you remember reading in other passages in, uh, in the other Gospels, he is the epitome of humility, of love, of grace, of compassion. And he's an example for all of us to emulate, to follow, to attain to. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that he humbled himself. That was an act of will, act of the will on his part, an act of obedience to his Father. What did he humble himself from? He was and is and always will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is a God of and the creator of the universe, the one to whom all the angels bow and all the angels worship and glorify, the one whose name is above all names. And yet, he came as a humble king. And he humbled himself. In our journey through the Gospel of Matthew, we happen to come today to the lowly coronation of the high and mighty and, yes, humble King of Heaven as Jesus comes into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. In all the coronations that have ever been held in the history of the world, there has never been a monarch so supreme, so exalted, so pure, so powerful, so glorious, so sovereign, so worthy as Jesus Christ. No one comes close. Even if you put all the kings all together in one bundle, it wouldn't come close to the majesty of Jesus. But even though he is the most glorious king, the most glorious person ever to receive a coronation, it is the lowliest, and it is the most superficial and the most hypocritical of all coronations. I'm going to do something a little bit different for our scripture reading this morning because we arrive to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, which gives us the entry in towards Jerusalem of, of Jesus. But the same story is told in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And they're almost identical, except Luke uh, inserts a few other items of uh, information for us. So I'm going to splice the two together by reading Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and interspersing the parts of Luke. And you'll notice with a different, uh, different font color uh, which ones are from Luke. So, Starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olive, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, which no one has ever ridden. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. 
They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed followed, shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I don't know if you notice as we're reading through this, but this story is full of stunning contrasts. You have the commendation of Jesus by the people, and then you have the condemnation of the people by Jesus. This has to be the most unique and unparalleled coronation ever. On the one hand, it's it's large, it's enthusiastic, full of acclamation and admiration coming from the people's expectant hope over their arriving Messiah. And for the moment, it seemed as if Jesus might be that Messiah and that the victory over all their enemies was about to take place. And in anticipation of that and the glories of the triumph and the arrival of the, of the kingdom of God, they were beside themselves with joy, dancing and shouting and singing. On the other hand, we see the shallowness of that celebration, the superficiality and hypocrisy of it, because it all ends in a pronunciation by Jesus of destruction and judgment. Rather than doom falling on their enemies, the Romans, and the arrival of a Messiah bringing about victory, doom is going to fall on them, brought about by that very Messiah. Instead of seeing the glories of conquest, they, were, they will experience the agonies of being conquered. Instead of experiencing the blessing of God, they were about to experience the judgment of God. They expect a conquering hero. Instead, they, instead they got a condemning judge. I don't think there's ever been a coronation quite like that when, when, a, when a king um, comes in and... Um, and he was being offered a crown and, and, and a throne. And he then turns on those very people and pronounces judgment and destruction. But that's what happens here as Jesus enters Jerusalem. As you'll remember, Jesus had just passed through Jericho. We've been talking about that the last couple Sundays, where he transformed the life of a wee little man named Zacchaeus. He had touched and healed and brought salvation to two blind men. 
And as he was traveling, the crowd around him kept growing larger and larger as they were all making their way to Jerusalem. Um, up four, about, about 4,000 feet from Jericho up to Jerusalem, about 17 miles. Now John chapter 12 tells us that he first arrived in Bethany before reaching the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem. John says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, you remember him, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Only six days until the cross. Only six days until the nails, the thorns, the mockery, the spitting, the hating, the sin-bearing. Only six days until that God-forsaken experience of crucifixion where he becomes a sacrifice for sin for the world. But there's a moment of respite. Just a moment, a moment of calm, a moment of fellowship and love as he spends a few moments with those he loves, with the disciples and with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their home. This was a moment, if you remember, as John tells us, that Mary took that expensive perfume and, and poured it on Jesus' feet to honor him. But little did she know that she was pre-anointing him for his death. Now, even while he was there, John tells us that this moment of quiet was was short-lived. He says, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. Just can't get away from them. And they came. So the next day, it says that Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. And they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount, Mount of Olives. Now, it's important to note that up until this point, Jesus had never allowed an open public demonstration declaring him Messiah. He'd never done that. In fact, he always tried to keep that quiet. It wasn't time yet. So why now? Because this was all designed, there's a couple of reasons, but this was all designed to inflame his enemies. Why Why do I say that? Because he knew the plan of God. He knew that he would die as a lamb of God and that he would die on the following Friday. That was very specific because that was the time that the sacrificial lambs were being slain at Passover. He would die as God's chosen lamb, dying for the sins of his people. He had to create an event which would so infuriate his enemies that they would move quickly to get him to the cross thinking they were operating on their own timetable and their own will, doing whatever they wanted to do. But in reality, they were working out the plan of God right to the detail. So Jesus triggers these events to fulfill prophecy. He's on a divine plan, a divine schedule, a divine timetable. We've talked about that before. Jesus started that from his birth onward. Everything that happened, happened under his total control to accomplish his purpose, which was to die and rise again. He controlled everything. He was no victim of the Jews. He was no victim of the Romans. He was no victim of Satan. He was and is in control of everything. So he's in Bethany with the disciples and with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and a large crowd starts gathering to see Jesus, and John says, and to see Lazarus. He was kind of an a, a interesting thing to see. I mean, he had just been raised, raised from the dead. They'd never seen that before. So he set out to Jerusalem, and our passage says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, 
on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. Now, this is the only mention of this little town of Bethphage in all of Scripture. And you'll notice Bethany was not yet in sight of Jerusalem. Um, It wasn't until you get to the top of the Mount of Olives to Bethphage that you were actually able to see down and see the city of Jerusalem. So he's about to prepare his entry into Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, this is not a triumphal entry with regal splendor, as you would normally think a king would come in. But rather, he comes with a strange collection of odd people who are not in any kind of uniform. They don't have any weapons. They certainly don't constitute an army. Uh, they aren't formidable. They, there aren't any, they aren't any kind of a threat. There's just a collection of people from here and there and everywhere as they have been collecting. And Jesus comes not with a triumphant, conquering army, but he comes in peace. So as he and the disciples in this crowd leave Bethany and come to Bethphage, he sends two of his disciples into town for a special errand. Now, I'm assuming, it doesn't tell us, but I'm assuming it's probably Peter and John, two of his closest that he sent. Because uh, over in Luke chapter 22, uh, it names those two. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus sent Peter and John to go and find the upper room. That, that was another, uh, another errand, special errand that Jesus sent them on. So it could very well be these two. He tells them in, in, in Matthew 20, verse 2 and 3, go, and, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her, which no one has ever ridden. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, how does he know that? Because of his omniscience, Jesus knew everything. We've talked about that as well. He, know, he knew that this is, uh, there was going to be a, a donkey's colt. He knew that the mother of that donkey was going to be there as well. He also knew that the colt uh, was one that had never been ridden before. Why, was that, why is that little detail? Just, just a little detail. Why is that important? Because this animal is reserved for the Messiah, never ridden by anyone else. It was a special honor. That's something, if you go back to the Old Testament, back in Deuteronomy chapter 21, and again in 1 Samuel 6, we're told that to ride an animal, particularly a young animal, never ridden before, was a mark of special honor. Interesting enough, as I got to thinking about this earlier this morning, I thought, you know what? Jesus rode into this world on a donkey. He was still in the womb of Mary, but he was riding in a donkey, and he was leaving the world riding on a donkey. Isn't that interesting? What that means, I don't know, but it's cool. Now, <laughs> you might ask, how come the people who own that don- those donkeys gave them up so easily? The simplest explanation is that they must have known who the Lord was. The sim- uh, that's the simplest explanation because Jesus told them, just tell them the Lord needs it. That was explanation enough, and, and, and we find that's exactly what t- took place. In verse 6, as the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and Luke adds, as they were untying the cold, its owners asked them, why are you untying the cold? They, they didn't know these guys. They replied, the Lord needs it. Now, it's not written, but I'm assuming the owner must have said, oh, okay, no problem. What we have here is a first demonstration to these people of, of the deity of the Son of God in, in, this past, in this last week, which is His omniscience, 
his all-knowingness. He knew details that were not visible to anyone other than himself. You remember back in other parts of the Gospels, in John 1, uh, he saw Nathaniel with his omniscient omniscience before he actually saw him with his eyes. In John 2, nobody uh, needed to tell him what was in the heart of man. He, he already knew what was in the heart of man. In Matthew 17, he told Peter to go, go throw your fishing, fishing line into the water and you're going to catch a fish and in the, in the fish's mouth are going to be two coins and you can pay our taxes with that. In Luke 22, when it's time for the Passover meal to take place, I, I alluded to this earlier, he tells uh, two of them that they'll know exactly where the place for the Passover is to be held because they will find a man carrying water. That in itself is interesting because usually it that's a woman's, was a woman's duty. But they'll find a man carrying water. If they follow him, uh, he'd, he'd uh, take them to the place where the Passover was going to be. So why is this important? It's important because Matthew tells us in verse 4 that he, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is the first of a lot of prophecies, prophecies that we're going to be seeing over these last uh, next six days in Scripture uh, that were fulfilled during the Passion Week, including the prophecies of the cross, prophecies about his death, the prophecies fulfilled uh, at his burial, the prophecies fulfilled at his resurrection. But this was the beginning of these prophecies. Now the prophecy in verse 5, uh, which we read together earlier this morning, is taken from Zechariah 9, nine. The prophecy here says, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this prophecy was from Zechariah 9.9, but the very first line actually comes from Isaiah 62, verse 11. Say to daughter Zion. Now, daughter Zion was kind of a colloquial Hebrew figure of speech, speech referring to the people of Jerusalem. Zion was the highest mountain in Jerusalem, higher than Mount Moriah. And so Zion was a symbol of Jerusalem, and the daughter of Zion then would be the people in that city. So he's saying, say to the inhabitants of Jerusalem... Say to them, see, your king comes to you. What kind of a king? Well, it's interesting because we still go back to Zechariah 9. Uh, We'll find the first seven verses, it describes a very different kind of king. And most, uh, most commentators feel that that was describing Alexander the Great, that had come just two years, uh, 200 years previous to Jesus. Um, And he came and it, in his coming, he inspired fear and dread, and he came in war. That was the first seven verses of Zechariah 9. Then starting with verse 9 and onward, he contrasts that with a new king, referring to Jesus. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zion's king, the Messiah, does not inspire fear and dread, but rather of praise. He doesn't make war. He makes peace. He doesn't, he does not, he's not a foreign tyrant. He is Israel's King. 
He's not cruel and oppressive. He's kind and righteous. He's not, he, he doesn't slay, he saves. He's not rich, he's poor. He's not proud, he's meek. He's not riding a white horse of battle. He's riding a colt of, of beast of burden, a sign of peace. Very stark contrast to the two types of kings. And even the disciples were, were honestly baffled by what was going on. And at the time it was going on, they didn't understand. Why? Because their own messianic theology, though they had been with Jesus for the past three years, had, them, had him coming to reign and coming to conquer. They were a product of their culture. They had heard all the teachings, the way the Pharisees and Sadducees taught about a conquering king. But later on, they got it. In fact, John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 16 says, At first, his disciples did not understand all this, talking about the events of Jesus coming into Jerusalem that we're talking about this morning. Only after Jesus was glorified, John says, did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had, uh, things had been done to him. They had that aha moment after the fact. But at the time... They would assume that he would, he would he should be coming in on a white horse, and he will next time. Revelation chapter 19 tells us that. He's going to come on that horse. So what happens next? Well, verse 7 says, they, they, the two disciples, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large, large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And Luke adds, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So just as they were leaving Bethphage, just topping over the crown of the Mount of Olives, the people began spreading their coats on the road. This is actually an ancient custom. Um, that we get a glimpse of way, way back in 2 Kings chapter 9. That was done in a way to express honor and submission to the king. They were basically saying, I lay down my coat as an act, kind of a symbolic submission, as I would lay down my life beneath your, your feet, O king. It says essentially, we place ourselves under your feet. We place ourselves in submission to you. This is a kind of a Jewish version saying, long live the king. In spite of what Jesus had been saying, though, the idea of the kingdom coming captured everybody. And their imaginations went wild. Here's the king. The kingdom has got to be coming now. Their emotions got the best of them. He will be their king. He will bring the fulfillment of all their dreams and all the promises made to Abraham and to David and to the prophets. He will conquer our enemies. He will establish Jerusalem and a kingdom from Jerusalem will cover the whole world. This was their anticipation. Verse 9 tells us that the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They never had a moment like this in their history. They've been waiting for centuries for the arrival of the Messiah. They were excited and the crowd in front of him and behind him, the whole crowd was joyful. And what was it that convinced them? 
they began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. This was kind of a summation of his three years of ministry, all the hundreds and thousands of miracles that they had been witness to, that they had heard about. You remember us talking about one of the reasons that Jesus did those miracles, and that was to give proof of his deity, to give proof that he was indeed the Messiah. And the people had seen all that, and this is an open confession on their part of the validity of his miracles. The crowds were growing, and listen to what they were saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where did we hear that before? Luke chapter 2, wasn't it? With the angels. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. But as we'll see, the praise of the crowd was superficial. And their minds were fickle. And when he didn't do what they wanted him to do or what they expected of him, they turned on him and with such fury that it wasn't long before they were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. But at this moment, their hopes are high and they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They named him the son of David in that. That's a royal title. They're recognizing him as king. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is an exclamatory uh, phrase. Save now. Save now. Deliver us now. That's what it means. They were echoing Psalm 118, starting in verse 22. The stone the children rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Yasa'ana. Hosanna. Save us now. That's what they were hoping for. That's what they were expecting. That's what they were shouting. So the people were hailing Jesus as their conquering king. Why are they thinking this way? Because the Passover, remember, was a commemoration of the great deliverance in their history when God used the great Moses to lead them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into the promised land. And they all expected that when the Messiah would come, that he too would deliver them. That he was going to come and exercise his power and authority and drive out these godless Romans and give them back their freedom. Remember, Jesus said that he was greater than Moses. That, that stuck in their minds. It's got to be him. So they were shouting, Lord, Yasa'ana, Hosanna, save us now. John tells us that they cut palm branches, which is also prophesied in Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9.9, and spread them on the road in front of Jesus. And palm branches in Jewish history has been symbolic of salvation and of joy. All of that, of course, was done with anticipation and expectation for a physical deliverance. But as we pointed out a number of times, Jesus hadn't come to deliver them physically from a world government. He had come to deliver them spiritually from a far greater bondage. Now, word had gotten out to the Pharisees. John 11 tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders, had sent the word out that anyone who knew where Jesus was, you come back and report to us so that we can seize him. So somebody had snitched. And they come marching out to that joyous parade. 
and they were furious. They were furious at how these people were praising this horrible man as the Messiah, as even a king. They, were, they saw this as blasphemy. But the crowd was too, was too big and, and couldn't care, could have cared less at that moment about those Pharisees. I mean, this is our king. He's going to save us. We don't care what they think. So the Pharisees, knowing that they could do nothing themselves to silence that crowd, turned to the source. They went to Jesus and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Oh, wrong thing to say. Wrong thing to say because this brought on a scathing condemnation and judgment from the judge of the universe himself. Listen, starting in verse 40 of, of Luke 19. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Listen, Jesus is the Messiah. He is that humble king. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the one who is omniscient. He knows everything, even those things that are not perceptible by man. He is the one who fulfills Old Testament prophecy to the detail. He's the exalted one who, who should receive honor and worship. He's the one that came in love and grace and mercy. But folks, he is also the sovereign judge. Jesus himself tells us this in John 5, starting in verse 22. The Father judges no one. Okay, the Father, He judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to whom? To the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. And he has given him, talking about himself, Jesus Christ, he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So the scene moves quickly from joy to horror. From the highest to the lowest, they're all saying, peace in heaven, glory in the highest, and Jesus crying out, destruction. They pronounce on him glory, he pronounces on them judgment. And the ending is absolutely stunning, folks. It's shocking. It's, it's tragic. So Jesus in verse 40 says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet. That's not actually a question of possibility there. That's a statement of reality. The very ones who are loudly praising him will stop and they will fall silent. And it will happen within the week, perhaps even the next day. Why? Because the opposition to Jesus will become so strong, not only on the part of the leaders, but on the part of the people as well. And the persecution will become so fierce that to confess the name of Jesus will be like a death wish, and Jerusalem will go silent. In fact, after this day, we don't hear any praises coming from the crowds during the Passover. Even after He rose from the dead, we don't hear any praise offered to Him. And when they go silent, the stones will cry out. Jesus said, what's he talking about? Well, let's keep following the text. 
He says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The crowd is shouting hallelujah and sheer joy, and he's weeping, overwhelmed with sorrow. Again, the contrasts here are stark. He knows what's coming, and it's coming fast. They will fall silent from their false worship, and so he wept. Now, this is not the same word that tells us that Jesus wept at the graveside of Lazarus, at, at Lazarus's funeral. This word is a much stronger word, and it's, it, it could be translated, he was heaving, he was sobbing in sorrow. It's the strongest possible word for grief in the Greek language. He is literally racked to the core of his being in the face of the superficiality of their praise and their soon coming rejection and the judgment that will result, which he himself will have to bring upon them. Verse 42, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Folks, that's a terrifying statement. It is hidden from your eyes. You had the opportunity. Now you don't. There was a time for you to see and believe. Now it's not possible. And the stones are going to cry out. What did he mean? Listen, the days will come upon you, he says, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When the judgment comes, it's going to leave nothing but rubble. Nothing but rubble. It's the stones in the rubble that are going to be crying out that they should have listened. Only God knows the future, and Christ is the one who will actually bring the judgment. But why is he so sad and filled with grief? Because they had the opportunity. He brought them the opportunity for peace with God if they had just received him. The peace he's referring to has no connection to earthly connections, of course, to, to Rome or Jewish leadership. It's a personal peace of being reconciled to God. They had the opportunity, and they rejected him. And therefore, judgment was inevitable. It's deja vu from the Old Testament when Jerusalem was conquered, the city destroyed, and the people taken captive. Why? Because they had rejected God. A pastor, the people were praising him and saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, but it's just lip service. Just lip service. There was no heart in it. It's obvious because the praise stopped almost immediately, and a few days later, they're crying out, Crucify him. And then the result was judgment. What does the judgment refer to in verses 43 and 44? Well, it's the judgment of the destruction of Jerusalem and his temple. The days will come upon you. That's the Old, Old Testament expression of judgment. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. That's kind of a palisade, a high barrier uh, to seal off the city so no one could come in, no one could go out. Uh, this literally starves the city to death. And according to Josephus, this is exactly what the Romans did. And encircle you and hem you in on every side. The city is sealed off. No supplies in. Anyone who tries to escape after they've been hemmed in, are going to be killed. Thousands on the inside will starve to death. And that's exactly what happened at the siege of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. See, the Jews revolted finally themselves against Rome in the year 66, and, and that then led to the Roman siege. 
And by 70 A.D., tens of thousands of Jews died, starved to death under the Roman siege, having been uh, encircled and hemmed in on every side, and villages all, all about were destroyed and people killed. And verse 44 says, They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. That's exactly what the Romans did. When they came to the temple, they threw the stones down. They unpiled the stones, not leaving one stone on another. What are the stones that will cry out? It's those stones. It's those stones. It's not some kind of euphemistic statement. They are actual stones that were tribute to the divine judgment that took place. The rubble of the temple, the rubble of Jerusalem, screams the truth of Israel's unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah. Total destruction. Divine judgment. Why? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There are consequences for that, and those consequences brought Jesus to sobbing tears. But folks, we haven't learned. We haven't learned. It's happening all over again. Deja vu all over again. Our own nation, folks, had an amazing opportunity. It started out well. People came to have the freedom and the desire to worship God. Our country was founded on biblical principles, and God blessed this nation. God brought prosperity to the nation. God used our nation to bless the world and to spread His gospel throughout the world. But it seems as though our nation as a whole has now rejected Him, has now rejected Jesus Christ all over again. Many of our leaders in government and our educational institute, in institutions and in our media and in, in our big tech are purposely and with intent turning our children, our young people against God, turning our nation against God. Look at what's happening in our country. We have never been so divided in this country as we are now. Seems like we're going back to the days of the Civil War, except much worse. Before it was north against south, now it's north against south, east against west, family against family. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under, until it is, a, it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be fire in one family divided. Excuse me, there, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, two against three. There will be divided, um, they will be divided, father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is happening today like never before. I see it in my own immediate extended family. I'm sure some of you are, are seeing this happening within your families where family members are divided against each other. You know, the popular motto, united we stand and divided we fall, is a commonly used expression Expressing unity and collaboration, which emphasizes the unity part. That, that's what we stand on. United, we, we stand. But our country is so divided, folks, that we are falling. We are imploding because as a nation, we are rejecting Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, 
Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against, against itself, that house cannot stand. Folks, there are countries, very large countries, that are watching, with internal, are watching our internal demise and are talking together and are planning and looking for a moment to step in. If you study Revelation carefully, Many theologians have, been, have noted that it's easy to pick out Russia, it's easy to pick out China, but you don't see the United States in it. And I believe the heart of Jesus is breaking. Listen again to Jesus' words. They should bring a new sense of fearful reality to us, a sense of urgency to us. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There was a time when in God we trust meant something. Not so much anymore. In the hearts of many in our country... Are they again crying out, crucify him? Folks, that's why we need to pray for our nation. We need to pray for the leadership of our, of our nation, for, for the leadership of our, for our educators, that God would turn their heart to him. We need to live out our lives for Christ and affect our culture. We should be energized to share the love of Christ one person at a time. That's what the Great Commission is all about. We still have that opportunity. You see, God's judgment is for those who do not recognize the time of His coming. And there are so many that do not recognize, and I believe soon that opportunity may go away. Perhaps we should be shouting out and crying out, Hosanna, Yasa'ana, save us now. But to bring this down a little bit more personally even to us, this passage is actually encouraging that last phrase he gave us because if, if we have, if you have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and trust Him as your Savior, you have recognized the time of God's coming for salvation. What an encouragement that is. And that's what he's called us to, and that's what he's asked us to do for others, to share with them. And I think there are many today, even within church circles, that, that pay lip service to God, but they have never made him Lord. And the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, have we laid our coats down at the feet of Jesus for him to walk on? Have we given our lives to Him in total submission? Have we given up our wills to Him? Have we given up our desires to Him? Have we given up our plans to Him? Have we given up our life for Him? Do we love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength? The people laid their coats down before Jesus as an act of submission to Him. And the question for us, each one of us individually, have we done that? Can we say this morning, Jesus, I submit my life? To you. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that we are to have the same attitude as Jesus who humbled himself. Why did he do that? To bring life to people. 
That's the same attitude that we need to have. In a moment, we're going to sing again the, the song that we sang just before the message, Humble King. We're going to sing, You are the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. He is still all of that. And He wants us to be all of that. And then the second part of that chorus uh, should be a prayer that we are singing, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like you, Jesus, to have this heart in me. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble King. Father, this morning we come to you thanking you for the message that you gave to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life. And Father, our heart breaks for for those who are refusing that message. But Father, you have told us we need to get out there. We need to share with them. We need to pray for them, asking you to, to draw them to yourself. We don't know when the end is going to come. Every generation has, sent is, has, has claimed it's, it's going to come now. But Father, the urgency still needs to be there on our part to share the love of Christ, to share that peace, to be humble and, and reach out. So Father, I pray that you would do that work in us and give us that urgency and the love for our neighbors, love for our friends, love for our family members. Father, do a new work in us and allow that to spread beyond us. In Jesus' name, amen.